0: We return to Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We pick up at verse 18, Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While Jesus spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman, which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment for she said within herself if i may touch his garment i shall be whole if i may touch but touch his garment i shall be whole if i may but touch his garment i shall be whole if i may but touch his garment i shall be whole the tense of the greek verbs indicate a repetitious statement again and again and again, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole, from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, He went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. Father, this morning, once again, we give pause to the record concerning the demonstration of power. In the life of our Lord Jesus, during the days of the first advent, it was and is essential that we should view your Son, our Savior, as having resurrection power. And indeed, in this text, we confront that very thing. And yet the intrigue that is to be noted in the rendering, as thy Holy Spirit drove Matthew's pen, has so many choice and blessed things to be received, that we would pray that you would help us as your people today to receive each and every little thing to the benefit of our souls. And certainly for that one that may not yet be secure in faith, In Jesus Christ, may today be their day, but help each and every one of us to hear the Word of God by the Spirit of God today for the benefit of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His blessed sake, amen. 825 years before the birth of Christ, Elisha that prophet of God, with a double portion of God's spirit upon him, revived a dead boy, foreshadowing God's ultimate plan for the elect to raise the believing dead unto life. God's faithful prophet in exile named Ezekiel was given a revelatory vision of the future kingdom of God to come to earth, God said to and through his faithful prophet, quote, And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your Graves. Resurrection from the dead is a distinct and promised reality associated with the kingdom of God come. Jesus, like John the Baptizer in that day, was preaching a message that the kingdom of God was near. And it is fitting that some of the fruits of that kingdom would be powerfully placed on display. Thus far in the study of Matthew, we have been introduced to the person of King Jesus, Matthew chapters 1 to 4, the principles of the king, chapters 5 to 7, and of late, we have taken in numerous accounts. We've called them vignettes. We've taken in numerous accounts of the manifest power of King Jesus. This morning, we recall the power of the Lord Jesus as was manifest over physical death. Adding to the intrigue of this first Advent record is the doubling up of interventions and interruptions, if you will. Please note in verse 18 the word, behold. And notice again in verse 20 the word, behold. Uh, The word itself just simply means see, see this. And so you have a statement of the Lord uh, uh, as addressing uh, those Uh, religiously conflicted individuals who had come to him with questions and while he is still in the process of speaking, still in the process of teaching, behold he's interrupted. And then after he's interrupted once and begins to react to interruption number one, behold he's interrupted the second time. Matthew's word of choice to alert us to the fact that Jesus was yet addressing the crowd, including the Pharisees and the disciples of John, when he was interrupted uh, by leading, uh, uh, he was interrupted by the leading uh, religious leader of the synagogue, uh, as, uh, as he was in Capernaum 9.1, chapter 9, verse 1, tells us, that all of this is taking place in Capernaum. The emergency appeal, interruption number one, comes at the point in time in which the Lord Jesus is in the city of Capernaum. And then the word, behold, verse 20 is again Matthew's word of choice to alert us to the chronic case of disease that would work to further delay any possible emergency response in that moment of time. Now, Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 also record this particular incident of the Lord's manifest power, providing us, by the way, with far greater detail than does Matthew. But as usual, we choose to resist giving you a composite overview of the three accounts, except to say that the name of this chief synagogue ruler who interrupted Jesus while speaking was Jairus, and that he first approached the Lord when his 12-year-old daughter was near death. But soon, after Jairus had made his initial request to the Lord Jesus to come quick, in emergency response, Jairus received word of a servant that his 12-year-old daughter had indeed died. Matthew starts with the sobering fact of the dead daughter of Jairus as a part of interruption number one. In context, since Jesus had returned to Capernaum one, he had proven that he had power and authority to forgive sins in the case of the paralytic and that he came to minister to sinners like the despicable Matthew and his publican friends. While the Lord Jesus, like John the Baptizer, called sinners to repentance, those that followed him found joy in his presence. Our Lord spoke of the dead-end street called religion and made it clear that his kingdom offer was about new life and new hearts. This context is important to Matthew's point in the account now before us regarding two interruptions. Not only is the context important, but the contrast is important. In this account, you have the death of a beloved 12-year-old daughter in contrast to a 12-year-old chronic problem in the life of an older woman. I don't know that she was an old woman, and I care not to discuss where that line exists, but she was an older woman. You have a family Of great social standing and financial means. Jairus, chief synagogue ruler in Capernaum. In contrast to a lonely, sick person living in poverty, impoverished, so. The other Gospels do tell us because of all her medical bills, impoverished because of all the doctors that she had pursued and uh, come up dry. Uh, You have uh, 12 years of a young, protected, and nourished life in happiness, running in contrast with 12 years of an older woman's suffering. You have the one that touched Jesus and the other that Jesus touched. You have a miracle in the midst of a crowd, and you have a crowd dismissed before the miracle. This sharp contrast, like the context, is important to Matthew's point, which is now before us. I want to simply follow the sequence of Matthew's presentation here. And we begin with the case of the dead. I call her daddy's little girl, verses 18 and 19. While he spake these things unto them, Behold, there came a certain ruler, and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. But come, and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Right in the middle of the Lord's teaching about the futility of man-made religion and the relational joy that is found exclusively in him, the most religious man in the region interrupt. The sermon. It should not be difficult for us to quickly see here that Jarius is driven by great personal need and well defined faith. The need is great, almost beyond description great, but Jarius' faith in the Lord as presented here, is remarkable. Although that faith had been likely a hidden thing up until this exposure point, as recorded in Matthew 9, 18 and 19, Jairus, when in trouble, came to Jesus. Jairus bowed. Before Jesus. Jarius believed that his precious daughter was completely beyond help of anything he possessed materially, of anything he possessed positionally. Being the chief synagogue ruler meant zippity-doo-da to Jarius. When his daughter was near death. And then, indeed, dead. Jairus knew that his daughter was beyond anything he possessed managerially. Beyond anything he possessed religiously. He came to Jesus as his very last hope for life concerning his young daughter, without any concern of propping up his reputation or propping up his position or propping up any religious expectations that might be cast upon him by the families engaged in the synagogue at Capernaum. Soon after the encounter started, as we reported, This dad, on a mission to save his daughter, would say to the Lord, My daughter is, even now, dead. Yet Jesus and his disciples followed Jairus home, regardless of the news, dead. We should all know what Jarius knew about the limits of church attendance. We should all know what Jarius knew about the limits of singing with the men's chorus. We should all know what Jarius knew about religious expression. It has no power or benefit for the dying or the dead. The ruler's faith in Jesus concerning the Lord's power uh, to lay his hand on the girl for living was, of course, commended by the Lord, even after the news of death. Everybody knew that Jarius was religious. Everybody knew that Jarius was the chief religious leader in the region. But Jesus knew that Jarius came trusting in him. It is astounding to me that Jarius continued to trust Jesus. In the face of a dear family member's death. Jairus, as it were, just fell back in trustfall into the arms of the Good Shepherd, confronted with such an astounding and compelling case of death. Secondly, we confront. Beginning at verse twenty, the case of the dying twenty to twenty-two. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the tissit, tissit, t z i t z i t in English letters. The Hebrew word it looks like zitzit. Zit. Put a T in front of it, it is tisit. and it's pronounced tissit. And she came and touched the tissit, the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may touch his garment, I shall be whole. If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Woman, no. Lady, no. Daughter." Daughter, verse 18. Daughter, verse 22. Jairus said, My daughter, verse 18. Jesus said to this woman, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole, not healed, whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. What a a phenomenal interruption. And what a glorious result in interruption number two. Again, that interruption comes as Jesus is moving. And his disciples are moving through the crowd on their way to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jairus. And this woman, suffering from a constant blood loss, approached the Lord from behind him. Her 12-year chronic ordeal did not constitute an emergency. Chronic disease is just that which gnaws and gnaws and gnaws, and gnaws on a person like a dog, a bone. And it just goes on, and goes on, and goes on. And this dear lady suffered. Not a week, not a month, not 52 weeks in a year, but 52 times 12. 12 years of increasingly pale, 12 years of increasingly frail, 12 years of debilitating disease. Verse 21 tells us that as she approached the Lord, she just kept saying within her own heart, within her own mind, over and over if I can just touch his tusset, if I can just reach forward and grab a hold of that fringe, that hem of his garment, if I can just, I can just like a linebacker taking a tackle towards the ankles, if I can just get down there uh, where that robe is hanging and touch his tassel, I will be made whole. Quite a thought when you think about it. Those fringes, by the way, those tassels, by the way, in the day in which the Lord uh, walked the earth, were clearly visible on the outside of a Jewish man's clothing. They hung, as it were, off his outer robes, those fringes. During the days of the Holocaust, the Jewish people put those tassels inside their clothing on the the fringes of their skidding fringes of their underwear so that they would not be visible in public so as to not cause undue ostracization towards them in regards to the public square. Uh, but uh, if you look at uh, the uh, rendering of clothing under the law, especially at worship, uh, there is worn to be on any four corners of a garment, there is to be the aspect of those, tisit, those fringes Uh, On the prayer shawl, which is called a tallet, uh, there is the fringes uh, that represent, by means of threads and knots, 613. 613 is the number of the threads and the knots on the tisset. And, uh, of course, you all know why 613, right? Everybody know? 613 is the number that represents everything the Old Testament law said in the Ten Commandments, everything the Old Testament law said concerning the civil law in Israel, and everything the the Old Testament law said concerning the ceremonial or religious ritual law of worship. All the laws uh, in the Ten Commandments plus the civil laws plus the ceremonial laws equal 613. And so the Jewish individual wears the the threads, the fringes, as a constant reminder of the law of God that has been given to the Jewish people. And the thought of this dear woman was that if I could just reach out and grab a hold of his, uh, the fringe of his garment, I shall be made whole. Now there is little doubt that the idea of wholeness in which the dear woman sought had physical, emotional, and spiritual ramifications. She not only suffered from the physical duress of blood loss, the physical distress of untimely hemorrhage, But of course, having such, she would have been considered ritually unclean and therefore unfit for public worship in Israel. Without saying a word, she reached forth her hand and touched his tisset. Jesus turned around. Laid eyes on her and called her by the same name of endearment the ruler had used for his own little girl. Jairus said, My daughter. Jesus said to this older, suffering woman, Daughter. My daughter. He bid her good courage, good comfort. The word courage is certainly appropriate there. And he told her that her faith in him, her faith in him, had made her whole. He didn't say healed. Now, one of the reasons why I like to stick to the gospel account under study and not ever get too caught up in the synoptic comparisons, is that the precision of the descriptive words used by each gospel writer reflect his own purpose and point. Matthew does not use a word for physical healing by the way, as do Mark and Dr. Luke. But Matthew uses the word sozo. And the word sozo in the New Testament is most usually the term for saved from sin, saved, whole, saved from sin. There are many physically healed in the first advent ministry of Christ apart from any sense of saving faith. But it is absolutely clear in this account that Matthew's report of the faith in Jairus and the faith In this woman, not a generic faith, not a belief in believing, but a belief in Jesus, prescribed as to his person, dependent upon what he can do. The faith of Jairus, the faith of the woman, is front and center. And in context, as the Lord demonstrates His power to instantaneously deal with this woman, woman even by the touch of His tisit. We have not only a good indication of her physical restoration, but we have a clear indication of the redemption side of her case. Jesus, in that moment of time, dealt with her sin, her suffering, and her eternal death. She thought, if I can just touch his tisset, I shall be made whole. And according to the scripture, in that very hour, She was made sojo. She was made gloriously, physically, emotionally, and eternally whole. And then, of course, that brings us back, in just following the sequence of the text, to the case of the dead, verses 23 through 26. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place or leave, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, derided would be the word in English from the Greek that would come to my mind concerning their ungodly and blasphemous response to the Lord's statement, she is not dead, but sleepeth. I'll explain why he said that in a moment. But when he said it, they derided him, they mocked him, they laughed in his face. But when the people were put forth, he went in, took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, there were funeral flautists. I would have called them flutists, but I was corrected as a boy. They're called flautists. Nonetheless, they play flutes. Flute players, when together, making noise, are called flautists. If you didn't know, now you do. Well, the word minstrels that we have in our text designates musicians and designates the kind of their instrument as being played. And in this case, they are funeral flautist. And along with the funeral flautists, there was, according to the rabbinical code of the day, there was to be at least one paid singer-whaler. Not a whale who sings, but a singer who wails or laments, who cries out in rhythmic sounds, harmonizing with the flautist. And so as the flautists play, the singer, at least one singer, was to be paid... To wail, my guess is is that because of the high social standing and position of Jairus, the synagogue chief ruler, that there was probably more than a few flautists and more than a few wailers or singers. Religious notoriety and social expectation would have dictated that such a ruler of the synagogue would have secured a large contingency of musicians and mourners to give cover. Cover for what? Cover for the family grief. Jairus knew as he arrived back at home with the Lord Jesus that his daughter was dead. Jesus, of course, knew that the daughter was dead. And the crowd in and around the house had only gathered because the girl was dead. And so when Jesus said to the crowd that the girl wasn't dead but sleeping the professionals went from orchestrated weeping to on-demand contempt. Most funeral directors and funeral caregivers become quite cold over years of dealing with the dead. And my experience with funeral directors, when riding with them, especially in the hearse, apart from the family, is that they can pivot very quickly from the sobriety and and dignity of a moment in confrontation of death to almost the most goofy. Glib, serious, not conversation you can possibly imagine. And they pivot back just as soon as the hearse door is open. Uh, These professionals, these funeral professionals, thought Jesus absolutely loopy. They openly laughed at him. And to his face, they couldn't hide their contempt for the goofy thing he said. Because it is goofy when you're, when you're in, a, in a place because of dead. It's goofy to say they're not dead. And I would just remind you that, of course, only the Lord would really know. But Jesus dismissed the mourners. He went into the room of the dead. We can know from the other accounts that he went in with her parents. He went in with three of the twelve disciples. He took her by the hand. She awakened. And the text says that the fame... I like that Greek word because it's almost the English word. The Greek word is fame, and the Greek, and the English word is fame. The fame hereof went abroad into all that land. It spread like wildfire. Now, aren't you glad that Jesus said, to those funeral minstrels, that the girl was not dead when, of course, she was dead. Aren't you glad that Jesus said she wasn't? And how could he say that? How could he say that she wasn't when she was physically dead? at that moment in time. Her human spirit had left her physical body. And as one elect before the foundations of the world, her believing spirit was alive and well, having gone the abode of the righteous dead. Jesus never says that a dead believer is dead. Jesus always uses the word that you and I use for a good night's rest, sleep. Jesus said, oh, you don't know She's not dead. It is not death for a believer in Jesus to die. The Lord of life easily brought her back for testimony, easily brought her back for glory, reminding us that for the believer... It is not death to die in the Lord. Religiously, Jesus should not have been touched by that bloody old woman. Nor religiously should Jesus have touched the hand of the dead. But the Lord Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to prop up a religion. The Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth on the mission of redemption. He had come specifically to deal with sin and death. Religion cannot help dead people, and that's how I know that religion cannot help you nor help me, for you and I are born dead in trespasses and sins, and without the touch of Christ we remain yet in sins unto forever death. There is hope for the dead and the dying. Our hope is in the Lord. The same Lord that the old woman reached out to touch his tisset. And the same Lord that said, the little girl is not dead but sleepeth. And went into her room and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Our hope is in the Lord. Whether or not, in your case, you reach out to touch him or he reaches to touch you, doesn't matter. Your great need in this hour demands the Lord's own touch. Be touched. And behold. As a sinner, be touched. And behold, as a believer, be touched. Get tender. Acknowledge your Lord. And let the truth of King Jesus today bring back to your heart and mind and the refreshment of your soul God's own sense of absolutely whole my promise, your promise in Christ is physical, emotional, spiritual. What great things God has done for us all. Father, help us this morning to appropriate the words of this testimony for the benefit of our souls. May our soul, our heart, our mind leap towards thee, the rock of ages, and the security and the confidence and joy that comes in relationship to thee. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.